Saul, Season 3, Episode 2. Witness is over, but we're just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who are heading down to Cracker Barrel. I'm Rob Sestrino. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? <laughs> Rob, Cracker Barrel, so good. Not Lots of... Bland breakfast foods and mashed things and meats. Yeah, Cracker Barrel is uh, pretty delicious. And Antonio, I, I do hope you stay out of the sun today. It's going to be a hot one. It's going to be a hot one. Uh, Rob, what's your favorite thing to get at Cracker Barrel? <laughs> uh, I would say breakfast. Yeah, mine too. That's about the only thing. Breakfast. <laughs> I'm a regular uh, Walter Jr. here. Yeah. Antonio, I've only been to a Cracker Barrel one time in my life. Is that true? Yeah. I saw this on Twitter also. Somebody had asked, uh, can somebody explain what all the fuss is about Cracker Barrel? Why do old people like it? Uh, Well, because the food is bland. I think that's a big thing. It's also uh, kind of a throwback to the old front porch kind of thing. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a little general store there in the front. Right. There's like a place where they sell like knickknacks and stuff. Yeah, like DVDs of Bob Hope and things like that, you know. So it uh, it is a thing. It's a it's a whole thing, yeah. and it doesn't surprise me that living your life uh, on Long Island and then in California, that Cracker Barrel is not something that's been heavily on your radar. Next, Rob, you're going to tell me you haven't been to a whole lot of Waffle Houses. No, I mean I love breakfast places, but I can never seem to get out to breakfast. My wife uh, can never wake up early. She wants she'd rather sleep in than eat breakfast. And now I have kids, and now. Uh, um, that's it. Well, yeah, you're basically on an all-night stakeout where you never get to uh, go to a nice... You, you can even go to Los Pollos Hermanos for breakfast, Rob. Uh, yeah, they serve coffee at Los Pollos Hermanos. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, it didn't look like it was the coffee was that good if, you, if you're if you trusting Jimmy's face uh, when he drinks it. But yeah, yeah, as a little breakfast bit of a coffee, coffee. snob, uh, no, I do not think I would be ordering any coffee at uh, Los Pollos Hermanos. <laughs> no, it, uh, yeah, Pollos is in the name, not not coffee, so who knows, but... It uh, it is apparently a breakfast restaurant, and uh, and this there's a lot of breakfast on the menu here, Rob, uh, or a lot of discussions about breakfast. But this is a full meal. This uh, this episode, there is a lot to digest. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff going on. We finally got to see Gus Fring. That uh, we had been talking about him for quite some time here on the podcast, uh, and then ultimately a big confrontation finally between Jimmy and Chuck, and things are not looking so great for Jimmy in that department. So we'll talk about all that. We've got some feedback questions as well, of course, here on the uh, Better Call Saul recap podcast. And of course, if you want to make sure you don't miss an episode all season long, things are heating up. You can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. The best way to do that is postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes, postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. And we do appreciate your feedback and star ratings, especially here at the start of a new season. All right, Antonio. So uh, where do you want to begin talking about Witness? Well, just from the jump, I think we should address uh, the Breaking Bad elephant in the room because we had this in previous seasons and it's coming up again now. I think for people who are fans of Better Call Saul and our Better Call Saul podcast specifically, but haven't watched Breaking Bad yet, we're in the danger zone at this point. We're crossing over into territory where discussion of Breaking Bad and plot points and things that happen to characters in Breaking Bad is almost inevitable. And I say that in part because they're doing things on Better Call Saul that very much tie into character arcs, character fate, that are much more powerful in Better Call Saul because of what we know about the characters 
in Breaking Bad, and we're we're basically just tripling down. We loaded three more characters from the Breaking Bad universe into this episode of Better Call Saul, and all seem like they're going to play a part in the story. And where we meet them at this point is relevant in light of what we know about them from Breaking Bad. So I think, unfortunately, we're just going to be talking about this sort of thing throughout the season. And I just don't know the answer. I, I apologize. We had an email from Knox Harrington, the video artist, uh, noted video artist Knox Harrington, who wanted to ask us if we could make it clear exactly what our policy was going to be for this podcast. So where are we, Rob? Well, I think our policy is that we have to talk about things that come up from Breaking Bad. And I do want to apologize to people that are have not seen Breaking Bad and are into Better Call Saul. But I think that for the small minority of people that are in that camp... I just don't think that we can hold back our discussions. There's so many things where we have like this shot where we go to like an act break on a reveal of Los Poyos Hermanos. And if you're somebody who hasn't seen Breaking Bad, like that means nothing to you. But it's like a a very important moment in terms of like establishing uh, this world of Gus Fring that we know well from the Breaking Bad universe. So I just don't know how we can continue our conversation of this show and not touch on things from Breaking Bad, especially where we have a character and then we want to say like, oh, well, it's important because this character is ultimately going to be this. And we know that this, you know, this character is ultimately going to this is going to happen to them and I, I just think that we need to like state our policy up front Yep, and that's what we're doing. So we're going to talk about Breaking Bad details here. And it really is, again, apologies to people who haven't had the time to see Breaking Bad. As I said last season on our podcast, Rob, when it became clear that we were going to get into this universe, it's for fans of Better Call Saul, I think the the time is nigh for when really understanding the Breaking Bad canon is going to significantly impact the value that you get out of the show. And it's always been a show that there has been a ton of value especially with regard to Jimmy and seeing his character arc, knowing what we know about the things he says and does in Breaking Bad. But there are so many references to Breaking Bad popping into this show and direct characters whose arcs matter. So we're going to talk about it. And it's unfortunate if you haven't had the opportunity to watch Breaking Bad or you want to wait till after Better Call Saul is over. uh, It's just our discussion of the show is going to include it at this point. Okay, so that being said, let's try to dive into uh, this episode. And I think we should start with uh, the way that the episode ends. And that would be with Jimmy having this confrontation with Chuck. We got to see sort of like this security guard earlier in the episode. You know, it's a little unclear what we were establishing there. Ultimately, just that the guy is there all the time waiting for this trap that Chuck has set for Jimmy to come in looking for the tape recorder. We have a prolonged sequence where Hamlin is going to... uh, come around the back and then he's like come on chuck let's let's give this up it's not happening before jimmy ultimately barges in and plays right into chuck's hand so antonio legally speaking what is jimmy guilty of right now well he's not guilty of anything because guilty until innocent until proven guilty however he is uh, in a lot of hot water with regard to a few things he threatened to burn the house down that is a significant issue uh, could easily be seen 
as a felony. He wouldn't be guilty of destruction of evidence, per se, because there wasn't a pending charge against him. But that would certainly be some form of vandalism or some form of destruction of property, uh, which could rise to the level of a felony, depending on to what degree uh, the the value of what was involved. And same thing with the kicking down the door uh, in terms of a breaking and entering scenario. Uh, You've got Chuck saying, I don't want you inside. I don't want you here. Uh, That could be seen as trespassing because once he steps on the porch at Chuck's property, he's on the property and Chuck is telling him to leave. So he's trespassing. He's breaking and entering. He's making terroristic threats uh, to burn the house down. Uh, He has uh, done a lot of very bad stuff in the middle of this thing. A whole lot of hot water. And uh, you just feel like Chuck is the kind of guy that's really going to prosecute this to the hilt. Every single thing he can get him on, he'll get him on. And it helps that you've got a co-conspirator like Howard, who in the middle of Jimmy's rant stops that private investigator security guard from coming out into the room. Howard holds him back and lets Jimmy continue to hang himself. So this is uh, really hot water for Jimmy, to say the least. I think you're talking felony level, uh, at at least at the beginning. Uh, That may be something in plea down, but he's starting in a very bad spot. But what about the stuff that Kim suggests where she says, look, you had a family member that you thought was under mental stress you were telling him something just to make him feel better is it possible that he could argue that he was doing something nice for a family member he told him something to make him happy and then that evidence is being used against him and he lost his cool Yeah, possibly. Like, that's the argument for a setup. Like, I was set up. Like, this whole thing was a sting. I was entrapped, uh, which is uh, close. I mean, yeah, Chuck is an officer of the court and has represented himself as such. So the really messy part of this and the part where the, the Howard of it all comes in is how dirty are they going to want to play here? Uh, Because, yes, if Jimmy wants to respond to this, he's going to say, I was set up. This was a family feud. I had a sick brother. He was manipulating me. There was deception. There was fraud. There were lies. There There was all of this negative, lying, fraudulent behavior on my brother's part as well, who, as an officer of the court, should not be engaging in these behaviors. So... It's not a clean situation. And you have to ask yourself an open question as to how dirty Howard's going to want to get with all this. Is he going to want to drag HHM's name through the mud and have one of the name partners of HHM be exposed as a guy who faked and exacerbated faking his medical condition, secretly recorded his brother, then set him up so that he could catch him uh, to punish him for some act that his brother did against him? It's just such a dirty, dirty, messy thing. And I don't know to what extent uh, Howard and Chuck are going to want to play dirty here, uh, but it's it's put Jimmy in a very compromising position to say the least, and his best response at this point is going to be uh, something that in the legal community I've heard uh, referred to as FBH, which is F back harder. Uh, he's going to have to just get dirty uh, with Chuck and make Chuck look as bad as he possibly can. This is going to get worse before it gets better. Rob. So what do you think Chuck's next move is that you were right on the same page as Chuck last week where you felt like that he was playing Ernesto in terms of that the tape started intentionally he knew what was going to happen next and go back to Kim who was going to talk to Jimmy and then played right into this spider web trap that Chuck had laid so where does Chuck go from here they're just it's as simple as calling the authorities now yeah that part of it is is a key part of it but the question is how dirty does Chuck want to get as we were just talking about and 
That I'm not sure about. He is off the rails a little bit. We saw throughout season two, Jimmy was encouraging Chuck to get down and play dirty, to play on his level, to blackmail him, to do all these things. Jimmy pushed this out of Chuck to an extent. And so I don't really know how far gone Chuck is in terms of his mania and anger and rage to get back at Jimmy if he's willing to drag his name through the mud. Uh, I, Chuck may think, I already embarrassed myself to Mesa Verde at that hearing. I've already reached my low point. I can't get any lower, so I may as well just make this as dirty as possible. He's going to call the authorities for sure. That's a big part of this. The question that I have is, Does he use the legal angle on this, the potential charges that are hanging over Jimmy, to negotiate with Jimmy? We talked a ton about this in season two, Rob, at the end. Was this tape recorded in order for Chuck to basically get Jimmy to stop practicing law or to stop practicing law as Jimmy McGill, to stop dragging the family name through the mud? And I don't think that's clear yet. I don't think it's clear if Chuck is going to use this as a negotiating point for Jimmy or if Jimmy's going to beat him into that submission uh, and if Chuck's going to be after his throat for the initial part of it, I don't, I'm not sure if I had to guess, I'd say it's the latter. I'd say Jimmy's going to be dirty enough that Chuck recognizes a settlement is the better part of valor here. Yeah. It's unclear if he wants to see Jimmy go to jail. I mean, we had that flashback back in season one where he was getting him out of a potential situation with the Chicago sunroof that he yes. could have gone to jail. So yes. it does feel like a weird thing for Chuck to want him to go into jail. But just for him to stop practicing law doesn't really feel like a fulfilling end to this conflict either. It doesn't, but it may be the the kind of decision or situation where a negotiated agreement pleases neither party, right? Like it's not what Jimmy would want and it's not what Chuck would want. But it's where they both end up in light of how the alternative to that is a really nasty, dirty legal fight that brings in all this family stuff that brings shame on HHM. I don't know that Howard is going to continue to back what Chuck is going to want to do. Uh, and I don't know at what point Howard may bail on that. Uh, so we had we had great a question from our own Mike Bloom about this. And Mike was wondering with things likely to head south, what are the chances Howard eventually decides the end does not justify the means and severs all ties with Chuck. And I think that's the question that's on the board right now. We already saw Howard saying the cost was an issue and how much do we really want to pursue this thing in light of the value that you're going to get out of it. But Howard was still on board. He was prancing throughout the backyards. He was doing sad hops to look over fences. He was doing all these things. So he's part of it. He was there as the witness. He was backing this plan to a point. I'm just not sure he's going to be willing to go through with it to the extent that Chuck is. And I think that you're talk- when we talk about changing your name and continuing to practice law, that could be uh, just a, a, a cop-out of this settlement. It, it's fascinating, though, right, because you bring up the fantastic point, which is that Chuck previously did bail Jimmy out of jail in a situation. And if you'll recall, what happened right after that was Chuck and Jimmy went back to Albuquerque together. That is what brought Jimmy to Albuquerque. I wonder if on some level Chuck has thought all along, this is my fault. I got him out of that previous thing. He never learned his lesson. I brought him here and enabled him. Now, to do the best by him, I have to punish him because I screwed up not punishing him before and getting him out of the trouble he was into that last time. Now I'm not going to have any quarter, and it's best for him for me to punish him. I wonder to what degree that's influencing Chuck at all. Do you think that Chuck 
could just sit there as Jimmy goes through some sort of a jail sentence. Like it's one thing where he's suffering at the hands of Chuck. But do you feel like that Chuck would be able to stomach the system than having Jimmy and being able to go through watching him serve out some sort of a sentence? I do. Uh, I do think that. But I think that for Chuck, it's a lot more personal at this point. I think that the system version of this, the play by the rules version of Chuck, the guy who is okay with the system winning and trusting the law and the best outcome in terms of the, the legal wranglings producing the best results, this guy who worships the law, Chuck. I'm not sure that's the same Chuck anymore. Chuck has been willing to bend the or break the rules of ethics to get back at Jimmy, to secretly record him, to set him up and stake him out and and put him in this position to essentially entrap him into committing these crimes. So I don't think this is a Chuck that is as morally uh, relevant uh, or as morally stodged as he used to be. And I think that that's a very phenomenal evaluation or uh, evolution of the Chuck character, right? Like this is a guy who used to rely on the systems, Rob. He used to rely on the value of these things. And now because of his crazy scumbag brother, he is down in the mud, just rolling around and fighting. And as a result, I'm not sure the system is the outcome that Chuck wants here. I don't know that he'll fall back on that system, especially if Jimmy's able to use the intricacies of that system to give him a little leeway in terms of his defense. In Jimmy's outburst last night where we saw him going through the desk drawer looking for the tape, Jimmy mentioned Rebecca, that we've uh, had a longstanding mystery talking about what happened with her. And he talked about how she left him. Do you feel like that that is going to still loom large, the Rebecca storyline? I don't. I don't know. I don't need another Rebecca scene at this point, Uh, although I feel like as this show continues to build the backstory of these characters, Jimmy and Chuck, we saw multiple flashbacks, for example, in seasons one and two. We haven't seen any flashbacks in season three yet, Uh, and this is a device that the show has used a lot. So I do think there could be some value, especially if... If there was some Jimmy element to why Rebecca left, if for whatever reason, Jimmy being in Albuquerque reminded Rebecca that she married a guy with a stick up his butt and his brother was a lot more freewheeling and fun. And maybe that's what more of what she wanted out of life or a relationship. Jimmy's outburst seemed to indicate to me that maybe that's why Rebecca left you. It didn't seem like there was a clear inciting incident that Jimmy knew about that caused that to happen. So there isn't a major sign signpost event that Jimmy knows about that he could say, um, this is why Rebecca cheated on you, or this is why uh, this is why you, you and Rebecca got in that major fight over whatever. He's, he's realizing that this is why Rebecca left you, and I, I just, I don't know if we're going to see any more of it. I'm curious, do you feel like we need any more of it, or is this a satisfying conclusion for you to this Rebecca story? Well, my question with this is that, is the Rebecca leaving Chuck, when, when did that happen in the timeline, and is that that somehow tied into Chuck coming down with the symptoms of the electromagnetic sensitivity. Yeah, we had talked about that last year, that maybe the two were somehow related or that maybe some great incident caused the onset of Chuck's the EMS or EMF or whatever we want to abbreviate it as like that. This is 
definitely something that could have happened. Similar to wondering what happens to certain characters that we know in the Breaking Bad universe, like uh, Hector Salamanca, end up a certain way at the beginning of that universe and are not that way in the Better Call Saul universe. What happens? Are we going to find out? Are we going to fill in that blank of what puts them there? And are, are, are any of our characters in any way related to it? I think it's fair to ask that question about what's happened with Chuck. And it, it could be the Rebecca thing ties into it. Uh, it could be that that onset was that, that Rebecca bailed because of the onset of that. Or it, they're all, it could all be wrapped up in a thing. It wouldn't shock me if Jimmy had an indirect role in all of that. And I think that's the part where the show could get a lot of mileage out of it. If for some reason Jimmy being around caused Rebecca to do a certain thing or made Chuck feel a certain type of way about electronic devices, uh, the Jimmy role in that really is where we get the most storyline value out of this because it does continue to influence and show the impact on their relationships and how there isn't just a sibling rivalry here that there are these back and forth blows for years and years and years that all influence what's going on here so is there anything else on the jimmy and chuck situation that you want to talk through or do you want to get into the rest of jimmy's night I just was a little curious if you made anything of the final shot of the episode, the look that Chuck gave Jimmy when it all was was clear, when they both declared that when the, the two witnesses came out and said they've witnessed it and Jimmy was falling back against the bookcase a little bit and Chuck looked him in the face and just kind of, I don't know what that look was, a mix of disappointment and I told you so. Chuck is a real a-hole and I think that that look just encompassed all of that. Yeah, uh, I noticed the very loud ticking clock also uh, in those scenes. Yes, uh, which is the time beating, the, the the time ticking and that sort of thing. We've seen Chuck playing the piano with the metronome and being unable to keep time. Uh, we hear a lot of natural noises in Chuck's place because there aren't TV noises or radio noises. There aren't electronic noises. So bat, the, the things like the ticking of a clock or a metronome, that has been a, a constant drumbeat in the background of a lot of these Chuck scenes. And that rhythm is certainly something that uh, is difficult uh, to ped, pin down exactly if this, is, if this is Chuck, like there's this constant drumbeat in Chuck's mind or, or where that comes from. But it is a very present thing. Something else that was in the background of these Chuck scenes that was interesting, we see Chuck and the weird private investigator uh, right before they have this long conversation. Is that fair to say he's weird? It's weird how he's presented. Yes. Why does he have to wear a suit, first of all? He's professional. He's professional. He's sitting at a table playing solitaire, I guess because he can't use electronic devices. True. Uh, So, so, And we're not in the full-on Facebook or social media world in this timeline. Uh, So he's sitting there just kind of in the dark and in the background, and it's a weird time of night, and he's he's just saying, yes, sir, and no, sir. They have this conversation about the, uh, the, the casino cards and how drilling a hole in them maybe prevents cheats. Uh, that's Chuck's take on it. The other guy's take on it is it's an easy way to make money. So it's an interesting view of how they lens a situation like that. But there is a shot of them. And Vince Gilligan directed both the premiere episode and this episode. And we'll talk, I'm sure, as we get into the mic sequences about how phenomenally well directed this episode was. But but there is a shot of Chuck and this guy in a mirror, and it really does look like they're in the crosshairs. It looks like they're being seen through the scope of some kind of gun. So I don't know what to make of that other than it's it jumps out. It's noticeable. If you watch it again, it's it's unavoidable to see this circular mirror that looks like a gun scope. And I don't know if that means that these guys are in danger. Does Jimmy pivot to that to deal with this situation? We have a couple questions about that we'll get into before we end today. But I thought that, that was fascinating. The other thing that was really good was the just 
blue in that first scene with Chuck, how everything at this dusk scene was this crazy shade of blue. Blue is a color that's come up a lot on the show, typically meant to represent Kim Wexler, but it's also a key color in Breaking Bad. And I thought that the, the color in that scene was f- fantastic. Now, outside of the Chuck stuff, I thought it was a pretty good night for Jimmy, I guess, which is sort of like in the other than that, how was the play Mrs. Lincoln uh, territory? <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. But we did get to see, like, uh, other than this, uh, on the work front, things are uh, going pretty well for Jimmy. He is interviewing for a new assistant with Kim, and it looked like that that was potentially going to be something that was going to boil over. It did seem like it worked itself out. Seemed like it worked itself out there. We have a solution there. Are you are you happy with what happened there? <laughs> yeah, I mean that it seemed like that uh, when we find out that Jimmy has a commercial coming on in 11 minutes, then uh, he is uh, ready to go with uh, Francesca. Kim wants to see more people. You know, she's always uh, much more pragmatic, uh, much more like Chuck. She wants to interview and, and check references. Jimmy says, uh, what's the problem? We could always fire her, uh, which is, I guess, is the corporate version of sending somebody to Belize, right? That's true. That is to send them right to the the Belize unemployment line. Yeah, this uh, I thought really just the the dichotomy or the dynamic between uh, Kim and Jimmy in that scene was good. Jimmy's in a rocking chair, which, by the way, is a notable characteristic of Cracker Barrel rocking chairs on the porch. But Jimmy is in a rocking chair, just casually rocking it away. Kim is sitting straight up with notes on her lap and reviewing the resume. Jimmy is having this more folksy discussion and they're hiring a receptionist they're not hiring a legal assistant that part is made clear where jimmy says you've been trying to find legal assistance for a really long time the legal assistant and the receptionist are going to perform different roles and i feel like at least for what they were looking for i don't mind jimmy's methods here we find out of course that it's francesca uh, or we know that it's francesca from the breaking bad timeline this is his assistant in the breaking bad timeline if you're not familiar or don't remember her uh, i suggest looking up her uh her role in the episode Face Off, famous episode from Breaking Bad, season four. She has a great confrontation with Walter White. That is worth remembering. And it's worth remembering in part because the Francesca of Breaking Bad, like everyone seemingly in Jimmy's world, uh, there are all these Breaking Bad stories that are playing out. Uh, Jimmy himself, we see a man of flexible morals, but trying to do the right thing in season one. Now in season three is further down the road in terms of Breaking Bad into Saul Goodman. We see that with Mike and his half measures and we see him trolling along that world and getting dragged deeper into the underworld we're going to see it in an uncomfortable way i think with kim wexler we see it in this episode even where something she didn't want to talk about previously is now something that she wants to represent jimmy legally about and she's in it and she has to talk about it now so that's an evolution and that's jimmy further dragging kim down into the mud and i think we see that playing out with francesca here and of course we've seen it with chuck but we already talked about that but we see that with Francesca here, where she seems to have goals. She seems to have the right ideas. She's interviewing well. She's saying the right things. I would never be mean to someone. I would never be, uh, oh, gosh, no. Like, these are all, oh, you have to be patient. You have to be understanding. And we see her being good at doing all of that at, in this episode. And that's very different from the Francesca of Breaking Bad. So just being in Jimmy McGill's world 
puts you at the bottom of the M logo on his wall. It, you crater out. You end up in a worse place than where you started. And I think seeing that with multiple characters now, including Francesca, their relationship in Breaking Bad is not good. He is sexually harassing her. Uh, it's just bad. So it's fascinating to see where it started in this scene. And it started in such a simpler way. Yeah, the video of her with Walter White uh, that you had sent me, I'd seen it also on the Better Call Saul subreddit, is uh, really funny. I did not remember her involvement in uh, the Breaking Bad world. I know you had done a rewatch coming into this season of uh, Better Call Saul. So, yeah, it it is crazy to think where she's headed with, uh, you know, that nobody else from this universe that we're talking about other than Mike. Like, I mean, these are the two people in Jimmy's life that are going to make the transition with him from Jimmy McGill to Saul Goodman. Right. So far, we may see Huell and Kuby, guys who are his henchmen in Breaking Bad, his A-team, as he put it, that really weren't always the A-team. We may see them come into his enterprise at some point in the Better Call Saul universe. But right now, we, we don't even see Kim and Chuck. We don't even hear about them in the Breaking Bad universe. And now we've met, as you point out, the only, only the second character, really, from his particular orbit that we're going to see extensively in Breaking Bad. And when I did rewatch it, that, that jumped out to me. I was like, I wonder when he's going to hire this assistant. I wonder when he's going to basically go to the bottom uh, at his strip mall office. And the clientele that's in that office are not a bunch of old people who are politely waiting to get their wills done. It is literally like hell's waiting room. It's the detritus of society that has been swept into his office. And it's a terrible, by contrast to this current scenario with rocking chairs and warmly lit waiting Waiting rooms and a dentist's office with a uh, fantastic uh, law partner or a person who's sharing space with you. His later office is terrible. Uh, and Francesca's going to be part of all of that. So it's fascinating, I think, to track where she started versus where she's going to end up. And they have to stay true to that. And staying true to that means that she's going to break pretty damn bad. And being in Jimmy McGill's world is going to be a huge part of that. So it's, it's great to have another example of that on this season that we're going to carry through to the Breaking Bad timeline. I mean, in some ways, does that humanize Saul Goodman a little bit that he's been able to keep this relationship for however many years go on in between from where we are now in the story till the start of Breaking Bad? Perhaps uh, if you if you do rewatch Breaking Bad, uh, the sexual harassment is evident, like the, the what he does to Francesca and the way he talks to her and their negative relationship. Well, is is and- he just like making comments or do you feel like that she's actually harassed for somebody who, like my Myself, who's not uh, does not remember that dialogue. He calls her H T uh, for short, and H T uh, the the H is for honey, and T is for a part okay. of uh, anatomy, and and she's basically say you have to you can't do that. And there is a lot of give and take. There is a lot of her. Not flirting, but her having no nonsense and not putting up with it. And we seem to think that what she's getting out of this uh, employment relationship with Jimmy McGill is she's going to get everything she can. He, she'll probably ask for an extra hand out of cash if 
she has to do something untoward. She's trying to make the best out of it in the Breaking Bad timeline. And that scene with Walter White is the perfect representation of it. She is just as crooked as Jimmy at that point, but she doesn't seem like that now. So I'll be interested to track how this emerges in their relationship and where that comes from. And, and, and I don't know if it's endearing that Jimmy's able to hold on to her or if she's just so crooked by the Breaking Bad timeline that you're like, well, of course they're together. Like she's as crooked as he is. And he brought that out of her. And I, we don't know that we could. I think it's going to be tragic if we see that. And, and as we see that evolve with Kim. But I don't I think it's a little less tragic and less uh, less devastating with Francesca. But it's the same pattern, right? It's the same. You get involved with Jimmy McGill. Your hands are going to get dirty very, very quickly. Well, and it's interesting that you use that word crooked because that comes up in that conversation when she first right. gets at the office where she's looking around and he's working throughout this episode on the W and the M. We saw him paint over the rainbow last week and then he's asking her to look at it and, uh, you know, what do you think of this? And she says, uh, looks a little crooked. And the part that's a little crooked is that M for Miguel. Right. Is that a little... Is that a little too on the nose for you, Rob? No, I think it's fine. I I, I didn't mind it. I mean, it stood out to me certainly. It's uh, it's on it's on par with watching Jimmy's commercial in the hospital last season, and then right after the commercial is done airing, the next commercial that starts is for the Garden Weasel, and it just says Weasel on the screen right after Jimmy's face has disappeared. Uh, it's certainly on on par with that, and it's on the level that the show has done before, which is. Oh, this is a thing that represents Jimmy McGill. And wouldn't you know it, it's just a little crooked. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are with with Jimmy McGill. And we've seen that, as I said, play out with the weasel moment. So very much, uh, very much a clear thing. Like, yeah, the the W looks fine, but the bottom of that M there, just a little bit bent, just a little bit crooked. And that's where we end up. But yeah, it's uh, we also end up in the world of Cracker Barrel. And uh, she takes to the training very quickly, talking about uh, those sorts of things. Be more folksy, more folksy, Antonio. More folksy call him Jimmy at all times. Uh, I I think that this is uh, this is the beginning of a tragic friendship between the two of them. But I do like how it, how it begins here, and I feel like it works out really well. They needed a receptionist. She comes in, she gets right to work, she starts doing a really good job, and. So I am curious as to how she ends up with the la- as the lady who stares down a manic Walter White and, ext- and extorts him for money in season four. Of yeah, can you just give a synopsis of that scene that's uh, really going around today? Yeah, in Face Off, that's the ending of season four. Walter is desperate. I mean, it's literally like his family's life and his life or, or Gus Frings. And he is trying to involve Saul as much as he can in this. He, he's looking for any help he can get. He does enlist Saul's help, but he shows up looking for Saul to close the loop on a key part of this. And he's f- freaking out because his life is on the line. He throws a rock through the door of the business. Francesca is in there shredding documents because she knows that the, the S is hitting the fan as well. And J- Jimmy knows, as Saul knows. And Walter has this stare down with her where he's like, give me the money or give me the number. I want to talk to Saul. If he's not here, I want to talk to him. And she's basically saying, you broke my door. Who would do that? Like, it's going to cost a lot of money to get that fixed. And Walter tries to hand her $1,500 in cash. And she says, no, I think uh, I think that door looks like it's going to cost about uh, $20,000 mm-hmm. to fix. And then Walt's like, 20000 Are you crazy? Like, how could you? And she's no like, well, reputable vendor would ever charge $20,000 for a door like this. Yes, exactly. And she says, well, now I think it's going to cost twenty five. dollars yeah. <laughs> and, and Walter says... 
I'll be right yeah. back. And he just he just gets he crawls through the hole that he's made in the door rather than opening the door again. Crawls out the door and goes to get the money. He's willing to pay twenty five k at this life or death scenario. He's getting strong armed by Francesca. So there you go. She gets twenty five k out of Walter White out of Heisenberg in the very episode where his powers are revealed like at their fullest in terms of his scheme. So this is a great moment for Francesca. Great moments in Francesca history. Yeah. So that could have been another season of. Breaking Bad, if we could have seen the uh, Walter White Francesca showdown. Yes, sir. Could have been his nemesis. Uh, You know, while we're here talking about the painting on the wall, the W and the M, I wanted to get your take on when Jimmy, after he has that conversation with Kim, I'm sure we'll talk about that as well, that he's back out there and he starts trying to uh, remove the painter's tape. And we see him that he is doing it the uh, same method as Chuck showed him last week uh, with the duct tape. Uh, Why, when he was resistant to using uh, Chuck's method to take the duct tape down, why was he following Chuck's advice suddenly after getting that bad news about Chuck? That I this was a little bit uh, a little bit wrapped up. Like he's doing it at first, and then this then Kim comes out, and this is all something that's weighing very heavily on Jimmy. I think Jimmy's just a guy who wants to follow in Chuck's footsteps and who wants Chuck's approval and who does think that Chuck knows a lot about life that Jimmy doesn't. And maybe there are good things about Chuck that represent good things about Jimmy, that there could be things like Chuck teaching Jimmy how to be patient and rip the tape off with two fingers so that it looks better. Things like Chuck bringing Jimmy into the mailroom at the law firm and Chuck giving Jimmy the the desire and the impetus to be a lawyer and not be a criminal in doing so and all of that. I think Jimmy's always looked up to Chuck. And I think that even little details like the tape, which does ultimately trigger Jimmy when he realizes that he's been absentmindedly going about life the exact way that Chuck told him to, and it causes him to to react and, and rip that off. I just think those little details are are so representative of the, the value or the role that Chuck has in Jimmy's life, why he is so emotionally impacted by this event that he is willing to break the law and be set up. Um, that's Chuck knowing that, that Jimmy is a certain way, but I don't think it's Chuck realizing the emotional, the emotional impact that he can have on Jimmy. Chuck manipulated that emotional impact at the, at the end of last season to get the recording, but I think Chuck thought Jimmy was going to break in under the cover of darkness and just steal this tape. And really what Jimmy Jimmy did is he wanted to confront Chuck directly. He wanted to yell at him. He wanted to talk to him. He wanted to have the emotional fight rather than just steal the evidence. And so there's a lot more than just Jimmy worrying about his reputation here. Chuck is inside him. Chuck is stuck on him. Chuck is something that influences the little things like him pulling tape off to the big things like the career choices that he's made. And so it's a much more significant violation because of that. Jimmy looks up to Chuck, I think. And this is a a devastating blow. When he says he taped me, when he's finding out about it, he's crestfallen and heartbroken. And in fairness to Jimmy, I don't think he looks at it like he did something to Chuck that much. I I feel like that, you know, he was doing something for Kim. It came at the expense of Chuck. But I don't think that his desire was ever to injure Chuck. And I feel like that his attitude is like, uh, like, what the F is wrong with you? Why are you doing this to me? 
Yeah, because he ultimately came clean to Chuck from an emotional place. When when he thought that Chuck was so upset, that's when he told the truth. Yeah, I did I did rat F you. Like I did do that to you. And he did that because of his emotional sensitivity toward Chuck. He came clean like that. He never wanted to hurt Chuck the way that it did. I think all of that is true. And Chuck's response to that and, and Chuck's response to realizing he didn't really want to hurt me emotionally and he only told me because he's looking out for me emotionally he he actually does care about me he just needs to be taught a lesson chuck's response is cold-blooded man like it is as cold-blooded as it gets and i think we're going to see and i think we, we got into this a lot earlier in this podcast but the the thing to track will be how far is chuck going to take this is he going to want to get i mean is he upset on a really angry emotional level does he feel like he enabled jimmy like what is his motivation going to be going forward because if he really digs the the screws into jimmy and is just a jerk about it chuck doesn't have any high road at that point because even though jimmy has screwed chuck over and lied to chuck when it came time to really feeling emotionally bad about how it impacted chuck jimmy was very was willing to admit a felony to make Chuck feel better. Chuck, on the other hand, seems to be willing to commit a felony uh, or to to break his own strictures of the law and to completely ignore on most levels his uh, his electrosensitivity to, to manipulate poor Ernesto, Rob. Poor Ernie, we haven't even talked about uh, the moral dilemma that Chuck put Ernie into with this and poor Ernie is in a mess. Uh, so Chuck is willing to ruin multiple people here to get revenge on Jimmy. And I just, uh, that's not something that, that is in Jimmy's playbook against Chuck. And I think that makes it an even bigger slight for sure. Okay, well, let's talk about Ernesto and we see him reach out to Kim and really um, Ernesto is uh, in season two. Was he this much of like uh, of an idiot? Did they try to make Ernesto look like uh, sort of like uh, so bumbling Antonio? I don't remember that. I remember he was very put upon, like very just frustrated and and sad and pitiful on some level. When, for example, Chuck and I and I should add, Jimmy got an Ernesto in the middle of this scheme as well. Perhaps not by direct intention, but by lying to Chuck about the, the the forgery and by Chuck sending Ernesto there, Ernesto got stuck in the middle of that as well. And when Ernesto lied for Jimmy and said, Jimmy called me, he wasn't just waiting there for you to fall down and hit your head. Uh, Ernesto walks away saying, I miss the mailroom. Like, this is not what Ernesto wants. He seems to be a pretty conflict-averse kind of guy. And that's all I really remember about Ernie is he's a decent guy who doesn't does not belong in this world where Jimmy and Chuck hate each other and they're fighting the way they're fighting, which makes the theories about Ernesto being Gus Fring's son all the more interesting. If he is Gus Fring's son, he seems to be the exact polar opposite of Gus Fring, who would be able to wear all of this with just absolute, just sheer emotionless uh, dealing with it. And this is weighing on Ernesto heavily. He's got a car with a big spoiler on the back, Rob. Is there is that, is that a spoiler alert? That's <laughs> yeah, on the back a, of a literal car? one, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. So he does exactly, I believe, what uh, he doesn't maybe do exactly what Chuck thinks in that he goes to Kim and not Jimmy. But he's been scared by Chuck's confidentiality talk. And he feels like Kim can, uh, if he doesn't talk to Jimmy directly, maybe he's not breaking confidentiality and all of that. And she's like, but you called my office. 
Yeah, Ernesto did not do a good job of covering his tracks. But I think Chuck put the fear of God in Ernesto for sure. And Chuck does a really good job of doing that. Ernesto is scared. I don't know what role he'll play going forward. But if this is Gus Frank's son, he couldn't be more different from Gus Frank. Yeah, and I do think that it would be tricky to sort of tie this all together. And I'm not sure what it adds to the story to have Ernesto be Gus Frank's son since we already like we thought that that would be sort of a conduit to get to Gus Frank. That's not how we get to him so we um we'll get into gus uh, in a little bit let me just just stick with the ernesto he and kim have this conversation she ends up pulling jimmy in and we end up with kim saying hey give me give me a dollar give me some money give me a dollar and immediately it became clear to me that kim wexler is a very smart person uh, and as a lawyer would recognize that there are going to be conversations that we have here that can be protected by the attorney-client privilege and the confidentiality associated with that. But that can only happen if you hire me. Uh, once you hire me, once you, once I'm officially your attorney on that on that level, or once you've engaged me to discuss this issue with you, then it's privileged. Then I don't have to reveal it later. Then it's not something that will come back to haunt you. We can have an open and frank conversation. That's a brilliant move by Kim. It is a brilliant move that we see in Breaking Bad that Jimmy pulls with Walt and Jesse when they've taken him to the desert and are threatening him because they want to know what does he know and how do we how do we get out of this situation and that's when one of Jesse's dealers Badger has been arrested and they're worried about uh, what all is going to come from that and they take Saul into the desert to try to threaten details out of him and he eventually flips the tables on them and uses that dollar trick give me a dollar hire me now we can talk about whatever you want and you don't have to worry about keeping your identity secret because because you've engaged me and now it's privilege. And J- and Kim does the same thing with Jimmy. So it's a uh, Kim is a brilliant brilliant lawyer. There's just no two ways about it. And we see it again later in the episode when she's talking about this tape with Jimmy when she goes over all the details about why the tape really won't matter and she basically runs down the exact same thing that Howard Hamlin already did right down to like Howard's not going to want to use this tape it's bad for HHM can't play it for Mesa Verde it's not going to really hold up in court there's going to be a lot of mitigating factors it's the same litany that Howard ran off to Chuck about why the tape didn't have value and Kim was trained by Howard and Chuck so she can think on their level like that and uh, it's a little surprising that her failure if you if you call it a failure in this episode was that she could not figure out what chuck's plan is and that's maybe showing a little bit of a blind spot right that she has a blind spot toward jimmy that she couldn't think he's trying to trigger you into coming to steal this tape because that's the kind of thing that you would do maybe it's also that she's blind to the emotional level of the fight between jimmy and chuck that chuck is willing to stoop that low against his own brother it does seem like the kind of thing that that is crazy or that wouldn't seem like like the kind of thing that a guy like Chuck who respects the law would do to set up this sting operation. And yet here we are. So she is blind to that element of their plan. Even as she's able to dissect all the reasons why legally the tape wouldn't matter, she can't think on the emotional level uh, of the Jimmy and Chuck relationship to discern, okay, now what's going to happen next is he wants you to come steal this tape. Like she can't think on that diabolical level that Jimmy maybe could. And Jimmy's too clouded by his anger 
anger over the situation and the fact that the tape exists at all to see the plan for what it is. Uh, that Chuck is able to get past both of them in that regard. I thought that the dynamic between the two of them was very interesting, where she is much more active and is talking about, okay, we're okay. Here's what we're gonna do. We'll do this. Like, uh, we'll figure this out. And he's just sort of like checked out from the moment that he realizes he taped me. He taped me. And right. he's uh, just unable to sort of like come to grips with what has happened. Yeah. And that's because I think it hit him on an emotional level that she just doesn't comprehend that she can't understand the full details of everything that is present between Jimmy and Chuck in much the same way that we can't truly get it. We can get from Bob Odenkirk's acting that he's totally floored by this, but we can't we're not necessary. We are certainly capable of seeing through the elements of this plan. I think before that. The full details of the plan have not emerged. We just know there's a guy waiting in Chuck's house. We don't 100% know what this guy is waiting for. We only find out later when Howard shows up what the full plan is. But even at that point as an audience, we're probably able to understand that there is this greater plan in play. We talked about it even last week, what the plan might be. But Kim just doesn't get it on that level and doesn't get it. And Jimmy is so floored by the emotional elements that he doesn't get it either. And unfortunately, he does exactly what Chuck thought he would do, uh, just in a, in a more emotional and different way. And maybe Chuck couldn't even grasp the emotional level of the situation. So there's a point where then Jimmy decides that he's going to go back to seeing clients. He talks to the guy who is a bottle cap collector and he talks about how the thrill of bottle collecting or bottle cap collecting is the hunt. Did that jump out to you at all? Do you feel like that does that refer to Jimmy pulling off his cons? Does that relate to what Chuck was doing to sort of like entrap Jimmy? Is that have to do with Mike? I think that's a good observation with with really all of it, that there is this this is an episode where that is a key part of both of those stories, the Chuck story and the Mike story. And for the unfortunate for the, the unfortunate part of it for both of them is I don't know that the thrill is in the hunt. Maybe it is for Mike to an extent uh, it seems very mundane to never sleep and to sit in a car and take notes all the time Not and to just me. look through mirrors and. <laughs> yes, it seems very mundane that that's what's happening. No sleeping, none of that. Yeah, talk to me. Hello. Yeah. But uh, there, for Mike, that is his stock and trade. That's where he eats his lunch. So, uh, literally, the pimento. <laughs> so I, I do think that that's part of it. Uh, and I, I, I think that's a good observation, that that, that dialogue is, is representative of, of this larger thing that's going on. And really, the show of Better Call Saul in general, uh, because we already know the key outcomes for Jimmy and for Mike, we already know the key outcomes for Gus now. We already know what's going to ultimately happen with this character in the Breaking Bad timeline, at least. The thrill for us is finding out how we get there. We're hunting down the clues to, uh, is this going to be this? Is this going to be that? Is Chuck going to live or die? Is this maybe Kim? Like we're, we're The thrill for us, even though we know the ending, the thrill is in the hunt. And we uh, on this show have added a lot more uh, value to that, of course, with characters like Chuck and Kim. And by throwing the whole Gene thing into the mix, uh, there's a lot more thrill in Better Call Saul than originally anticipated. But the thrill is in the hunt is a good, 
I think, summary of Better Call Saul. And a lot of what people find frustrating about Better Call Saul, the, the people that do find it frustrating, that there is so much hunt going on and not a lot of find. Uh, because once they get to a certain point, they're in the Breaking Bad timeline. Once you turn them into full Saul Goodman, uh, you've, you've encompassed all of that. So you have to find a lot of thrill in the hunt until you get okay, there. Okay, so let's start to bring the mic side of things into it. But first, let's just take a moment and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast. And those are our friends over at True Car. And Antonio, if you're like uh, Mike Ermintrout, you're going to spend a lot of time in your car. You really are. And looking at other cars. And looking at cars. So you need to know what's going on when you're looking to buy a new or used car too. And with True Car, there are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. Whether you're looking to buy new or used, you can get that upfront pricing information that empowers discounts off the list price for used cars and a better car buying experience through the True Car Certified Dealer Network. There's over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from the True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. You can see what other people are paying for the car so you can know what a fair price is and feel confident like Jimmy McGill. With True Car, you can connect to a local certified dealer of your choosing and enjoy a quick car buying experience. True Car users, Antonio, are saving an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. I mean, you would think if uh, Jimmy or Gus or any of these people, if they had that kind of savings that they would have avoided them uh, maybe getting into any sort of nefarious actions. Absolutely. Yeah. And having that local person on, on board and knowing what's going on in your area, very key element of what Mike's doing here. So I think Mike would appreciate that it. That is a key element. Using True Car, you can easily find the newer used car that you want. So when you're ready to buy that new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. All right. There is a phone call that comes in and it's a Mike Ehrman Trout. Did you know that they have trout at Cracker Barrel? I did not. How is I'm the fish a, at Cracker Barrel? I'm sure it's black like everything else. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure it comes with a side of sausage gravy. Uh, I did not know that they had trout at Cracker Barrel. I love this because initially you don't know it's Mike Ehrman Trout. You just know it's somebody who is not having the small talk. And then when she says his name, Jimmy's ears perk up and it's a joke for us. That, of course, this guy wants no part of your small talk. Like he's not, he's going to laugh this off. He has no patience. He doesn't do folksy. Yeah, he's not too folksy, Mike. He's not one for the, the charming conversation. Yeah, so this is great. Poor friend. Francesca. It's her first day, and Mike is already ruining her world, as Jimmy puts it. But Jimmy's ears do perk up. Jimmy seems to always be willing, no matter what's going on. He seems to be willing to put Mike Ehrmantraut ahead of his other clients. What do you make of, of the way Jimmy views Mike, Rob? Are you, are, you on the, are you on the team that this says something about what Jimmy wants out of the world, that he's willing to just jump into whatever caper or scheme Mike wants him to do without many questions asked? Yeah, I did find that a little bit odd that I feel like that Jimmy has so many things going his way, and obviously this is before he finds out about the Chuck tape that I feel like that Jimmy's reaction to Mike is on the phone should be what does this guy want now? I mean how does this benefit me? But he seems super eager to take Mike's call. He does and I always like it when Mike needs Jimmy because I think that it validates Jimmy to a certain extent in my eyes. We see Jimmy as a good lawyer a lot of the time on this show. We've seen it multiple times throughout the seasons but we see Jimmy as this guy who's desperate to prove 
prove himself and really needs this acceptance, mostly with Chuck, but in the, in other realms as well. And I think with Mike, he sees this Slip and Jimmy side that can come out. With Mike, he's usually doing something a little bit crooked, like uh, like he has at his core. Uh, he can't help, I think, because of his Marco Ness to pivot to that. And we see a great shot of him later in this episode holding on his office door after he's been done with all the wills for the day, still wearing the Marco pinky ring. So still thinking of his time in Cicero and the scams he used to run. And I think his time with Mike is something that is very reminiscent of that and speaks to that part of his character. And so he's always willing to drop everything and go with that. But I also like that Mike... When he needs something, Mike, a character that we know to be incredibly competent, like highly intelligent and smart, is still willing to, to pivot to Jimmy. He has not bothered to go find another person because he sees Jimmy as useful in this universe. He's trusting Jimmy with this eyes and ears task, a task I might add that Jimmy does so poorly that Gus gets the drop on Mike. Uh, but this is, a, this is, I think, maybe Mike having a little bit of a blind spot and using Jimmy and Mike really not having anyone else yet that can help him in Albuquerque. I always like it when Mike calls Jimmy, though, for that reason. And it's a good way to do what we've talked about a lot on the show. How do you bring Jimmy and Mike together? The difficult work that this show has to do where there are these two separate worlds. And if you bring Jimmy fully into Mike's world, then he's going to know Gus Fring at some point, And we're going to get him out of this other world. How do we do that? How do we create two shows that are linked and so this is great connective tissue here that mike calls jimmy says do you want to meet for breakfast like and then they go and they have this great caper that we introduce with seeing jimmy at los polios hermanos yeah what do you think of the stylistic choice where we sort of heard mike's instructions sort of off screen as we saw jimmy start to move into uh, los polios hermanos i liked it as a choice i mean it, it really did read a little bit like a caper like an ocean's 11 type thing you're you're hearing these characters plans and then you're watching them play out i thought that was a good choice. Mike doesn't do a lot of talking on screen in this episode, Rob. Because <laughs> yeah. for the first part of this episode, right, he's just driving around through Albuquerque at night in the rain, like some of the most gorgeous stuff that's ever been shot on Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. Uh, just driving through Albuquerque at night in the rain, following this guy around from dead drop site to dead drop site, not saying a word. So Mike is just not talking much on screen in this episode. So I like that choice to take his words off of the screen. Did you like the the opening sequence with Mike driving through the night in Albuquerque? Uh, where we got to see a lot of the uh, following the guys around that were uh, with the backpack? Yeah, and, the, and just the, I guess, cinematography porn. Like the shots that are in that there's the shot of Mike standing on the open road with a 55 mile per hour speed limit signs on either side of him with the city lights in the background slightly out of focus. There's the shot of Mike looking at that bridge with the tunnels under it from afar where there's like the tilted focus effect going on where you see it looks almost like a model. It looks fake. It's something out of yeah. uh, something out of an old movie or something, but it's very real and we know that it's real and it's just something they've done with the focus. I, I don't know. I don't know if you thought that was too much or if you thought that the this is an example of Better Call Saul being unlike a lot of other shows on TV in terms of what they do with the camera. I was a little bit like ready to see what's going on. I think I was probably more impatient than some. Yeah, and I, I, I get that because this is a okay, show, right? let's that, go. Get on with it. Yeah, where am I going to find where this guy actually ends up? Like, And I do understand that. There are people who watch this show 
that luxuriate in these sequences, which we had one last week. We had a really long one, and I know a lot of viewers found it frustrating as they watched Mike literally pull a car apart piece by piece in a junkyard. And even though it looked great and it was cool how they handled it, there are a lot of things on this show specifically, a lot of these sequences where we have these extended Mike being Mike sequences that don't have any words, that do include a lot of incredible shots, and that sometimes are more riveting than others. Sometimes he's looking at Hector Salamanca through the the, the scope of his rifle, and the, the noises around him are phenomenal. Sometimes he's running a remote control car into the house of the Kettleman's, and sometimes he's just driving around Albuquerque at night, Rob, just looking at cars from afar, following them into buildings at night, following them to dead drop sites, and watching them climb over things that don't even look like they're part of this universe uh, with that bridge. So I personally like that, but I get it that there are people who watch this show that don't like that, and there are people who watch the show because that that's their favorite part about the show. Just another example, I think, of the difficult heavy lifting Better Call Saul has to do with pleasing all those people. So I guess let's talk through this and then we'll circle back to Jimmy at uh, Los Poyos Hermanos. So did you get a sense of what the exchange was that was going on? I know we saw a lot of stuff. Uh, we saw the backpack. We saw the guys doing the crossword puzzle. But did you get a sense of what the exchange was? No, I, I didn't. Uh, they probably handed him off uh, money or drugs or most likely money at these dead drop sites. Uh, we saw in season two, for example, the Salamancas are using a dead drop site in the desert for their driver to pick up a gun as soon as he crosses the border. And uh, I don't think he's picking up a bunch of guns at these dead drop sites. He's probably picking up drug money and bringing that to Gus. And that's that's the enterprise that we're seeing here. Uh, I don't think that he's picking up actual drugs. He's probably picking up money. These guys were probably part of that, and their stakeout of Mike is part of that. And wherever Mike goes, they're going to need to be on the move or whatever. Uh, but I think he's picking up just drug money, probably, and then passing it off to Gus, such that it's a routine, right? Mike sends Jimmy in in part because he knows this guy does this on a regular basis. So you can sit and post up in Los Pollos Hermanos, and it's in fact the next day. It's tomorrow. We don't know when the actual stakeout was. Mike met Jimmy for breakfast tomorrow and went through the plan. Did they go right to Los Pollos Hermanos? I don't know. But this is a regular occurrence for this guy. This is part of his routine. So I assume this is drug dealers dropping off this money and then another guy later picking it up. So there's no real chain where the cops can sit on them and bust them. It's much harder to detect. And I think that's probably what's going on. And we never figured out the answer to what happens with the backpack, right? No, we don't. We don't know. I I had my read on it was that Gus made Jimmy while he was sitting there. Gus was cleaning up behind Jimmy while he's in the place. I mean, Jimmy could not have been more obvious that he was staring at the guy before that. Mm -hmm. As soon as the guy shows up to the counter, Jimmy walks up to get a drink. He's fumbling with the drink machine. He's sitting in one place in the restaurant, and when the guy sits down, he moves his tray over to get a better vantage of him from another table. And then when Gus walks right up behind Jimmy, he sees Jimmy watching this guy so intently that Jimmy doesn't even register Gus walking behind him and sweeping up. I also thought that Jimmy looked pretty conspicuous in a suit also. I think that him and Mike probably should have talked through wardrobe. Yeah, show up not looking like a like a guy in a suit who might be a lawyer or who might be a cop or who might be a detective or who might be something that isn't just a dude who can blend in. Right, exactly. Like, show up inconspicuous. But he is anything but that. I'm not sure. I think what Mike's guilty of is 
he doesn't know who he's playing chess against. I think Mike thinks he's got the drop on these guys already and he's able to track them. They don't know what he's doing. But I think what Mike is forgetting is somebody got the drop on him to begin with. Like this whole thing started because somebody left a note on his car that said don't and wedged a stick in there to honk his horn to prevent him from shooting Hector. And they may have even arranged Nacho standing in front of Hector to prevent Mike from taking the shot. So somebody has a whole lot of uh, power here. And I think Mike makes a mistake of not knowing who he's dealing with, sends Jimmy in there. I think Gus made Jimmy from the jump. And I don't think any exchange went on there because Gus didn't force it. I think you could also read that as it's so conspicuous what Gus does or so inconspicuous what Gus does that uh, he's able to just sweep up something from the floor into his little container. And that's whatever he got from the guy. I don't think that's the case, but you could also read it that way. I think, what was your read? Was your read that Gus made made Jimmy and that's why nothing happened with that bag in that moment? Well, we know that Gus Frank from breaking bad, that he will not make a move. If he feels like there's danger of detection where there was like the longest time when Walter was coming in and repeatedly trying to get his attention, and then that Gus Fring is like, no, no, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm not going to work with you. And so I think that you're, you're probably right on this. Yeah, very similar when Gus first enters the Breaking Bad universe, as you're observing. Walter and Jesse are at Los Pollos Hermanos ostensibly to meet with him. And Jesse shows up in such a kind of way, just being Jesse and being frustrated and late and looking like uh, he just got out of uh, a court appearance uh, that he didn't have a good lawyer that told him to dress up for. Uh, Gus takes one look at Jesse and wants no part of dealing with them. Yeah. And they don't even get the opportunity to speak to him because of that. That is the sort of thing where I feel like that is exactly paralleled with this. Gus is watching when people don't realize that he is. And as you point out, he is a man of excessive caution. And seeing Jimmy there at all is probably enough for Gus to call that off and to not do that. And I'm sure that that's part of a prearranged routine with the guy with the knapsack. If I don't stop and ask you a question, then don't do anything. Don't leave the knapsack there. Uh, And probably that's what we saw play out, is that Gus got spooked by Jimmy sitting there and just called it off. So we didn't really find out what was happening. So we end up with a point where Jimmy just starts... uh uh, again, very conspicuously starts going through the garbage can at Los Pollos Hermanos till Gus is like, uh, can I help you? And then I guess uh, quick thinking, he drops his watch in the garbage. Now, going back to the introduction of Gus to Breaking Bad, doesn't Saul refer to Gus Frank as, I, you know, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. Is this sort of like a violation of that canon that that you feel like that we are going to have where Jimmy really knows who Gus Fring is in the prequel or they had a run in. He didn't realize that he ran into him and then Mike will continue to have interactions with Gus. But Jimmy will never know that this is Gus Fring, the kingpin. It seems like the latter to me. Doesn't it seem like that to you? Because it's episode two of a season. I have no idea if we're going to see Gus show back up in the Jimmy story. It doesn't seem like he necessarily fits with the rest of what's going on in Jimmy's world. But maybe this was like the one episode of the season where Jimmy and Mike have an interaction and the rest of this will be on Mike's story. 
And you can see Mike keeping Jimmy at arm's length and not telling him all of what's going on. Still using Jimmy for elements of this or for elements of things that he has to get into with Gus. And you can see Jimmy engaging Mike for other things as well within his own practice, especially if Jimmy starts to trend into a darker direction. That's a thing where Mike is a natural guy to call. Like you've already engaged in multiple uh, questionable capers with this guy where he had you help rob the police. <laughs> he had you uh, represent a guy who clearly was guilty of something and lie to the cops and fabricate evidence in order to get him out of it. Uh, so if Jimmy's going to need somebody who can get their hands a little bit dirty, Mike is the perfect one to call for that. Jimmy doesn't realize, I don't think, that Mike has already interacted with people that Jimmy might be in that world with, like Nacho. So you could see Nacho storylines crossing over with Mike and Jimmy that don't involve Gus. The writers, Peter Gold and Vince Gilligan, have talked a ton about how the really difficult task they have with this is they want to get Jimmy and Mike on screen together. They're like the Walt and Jesse of this show. They're the, the people that you want to bring together. But the more you do that... First of all, the quicker you take Jimmy to that criminal spot. And second of all, the more you jeopardize that part of the Breaking Bad timeline where Jimmy says to Walter that he doesn't even know who Gus Fring is. That he knows he's the manager maybe of that chicken place, but he's never even met him. And that you can't really violate. I mean, you could say that Jimmy lied to Walter, but that's not that's a cop out to me. I don't feel like they've crossed the line with this particular scene. If that's the only time Jimmy and and Gus share screen time together, I'd be totally fine with it. And I think the timeline would be preserved. OK, so we end up with watching Mike see this uh, green truck uh, walk out. Uh, he's watching the uh, guy in the backpack. So did you get a read on who was driving the truck? Uh, this particular truck, I no. We saw the guy in the restaurant. We saw the guy talking. We don't know as much about this guy. What we do see after that, though, is we see a different truck pull up uh, that maybe is a little more recognizable in terms of who's driving it. So there are a lot of people in Gus Fring's enterprise, seemingly, that we're meeting for the first time. But there are also people that we know from Breaking Bad uh, that we're now seeing are already part of his empire. One of them being Victor, the guy we see later driving the black Cadillac Escalade. So the Jeep driver, we don't know. The Escalade driver, we know very mm -hmm. well. Uh, we know what his his ultimate ending is in Breaking Bad. We know why. Uh, and so this is a, a very a fun way to meet him because it seems like to me that what happens here, right, is that Jimmy leaves. And as Jimmy leaves, he goes off to meet with Mike and to debrief. They are debriefing within Sightline. Of Los Pollos Hermanos, just down the street, uh, they're parked and they're they're in separate cars. And Gus, having made Jimmy in the restaurant, this is how you know he's made Jimmy. He's outside afterwards, just casually sweeping around. Don't pay any attention to me. I'm just a mild-mannered Los Pollos Hermanos manager. He's watching that whole thing go down, and he watches Jimmy get into his own yellow car and pull away. Then later, we see Victor pull up. Presumably, he's the one who leaves with that gas cap, and then he's the one who puts that phone in the middle of the street for Mike to find when Mike has been finally made. So it seems like when the situation escalates, Victor is the one who Gus calls. Now, can you just do a reset on Victor in terms of people that do not have all of these uh, sort of like uh, peripheral Breaking Bad characters at the top of mind? Yeah, Victor is a guy who was one of Gus's key henchmen that he often used 
to control Walt and Jesse. This is a guy who, when Walter was especially bad at the end of season three, and when things were were going really poorly with uh, the elements where Walt was coming at uh, the drug dealers that were were dealers who were affiliated with Gus Fring, uh, the the body man, the threatening guy, the guy who really came into the mix to look over Walt was Victor. He was he was Gus's eyes and ears in this way. And one of the things Victor did is. Victor watched every element of Walter White cooking meth, such that when another meth cook got killed Mm -hmm. by Walter and Jesse to save Walter's skin, allegedly, Victor was like, I can do this. Look at this. And he goes about cooking meth and shows that he learned how to do this already and that Walter is expendable. When Gus finally shows up to make Walter pay for what happened at the end of season three, the way Gus does it is by... Just a spoiler alert, killing Victor right in front of Walt and Jesse with a box cutter, one of, if not the most absolutely gruesome murders in Breaking Bad. And in part, Victor did this because Walter was able to kill, uh, use Jesse to kill Gail. And that seemed to be a slight against Victor, that Victor should have stopped Walter from doing that. Like that was his job and he failed at it. But also in part, I think because Victor was seen at the scene of that murder, there were sketches of him. Uh, He showed up late and a dollar short and he was a, a liability to Gus at that point. And then he was also sticking his neck out and being like, look what I can do. You're not needed. It was just a lethal combination for Victor that yeah. ended his life in Breaking Bad. I always thought in watching that, that I felt like that Gus felt like, a, oh, you, you know, you think you can do this? Like, there's a reason why I put up with this guy because he makes the best product in the whole world. And, and you think you can just step in and do it. And this is like a logical solution to this problem, you stupid idiot. And I felt like, and, and not to mention the message that it sent to Walt and Jesse. I mean, that's such a famous scene from Breaking Bad where he sort of like comes in and puts on like the like scrubs into Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Right, right, before he ultimately <laughs> uh, slits his throat with the box cutter. And the episode title yes. is named Box Cutter. So uh, that's the season four premiere, right? Right, right. And it was uh, much anticipated what the fallout from the murder of Gail Bedecker was going to be. And people we were even wondering, was Gail even murdered uh, at the end of season three? And was this enough for Walter to save his skin? And then, yeah, you're right. It's uh, one of those things like you think you can just take this over. It's also... You don't want an employee who is is replicating that recipe. That is a that is Gus Fring's most valuable piece of intellectual property. That recipe is gold. And if somebody who is inside his employee knows this recipe, who he doesn't want to know that, and who thinks they can cook it on their own, well, it's a pretty logical next step that that might that person might start cooking it on their own and might come after you. So he's already got two huge liabilities that he has problems controlling their cook. Uh, He doesn't need a third one walking around out there who has already been, by the way, spotted by witnesses at a murder scene tying to another meth cook. Uh, You just don't want any of that. So bad job by Victor to let it happen. Bad job by Victor to show up. Bad job by Victor to stick his neck out and say, I can do this. And it gets him killed. Uh, But this is Victor, I think, at the time of Better Call Saul, who uh, who is one of Gus's key guys. And what we'll see, of course, is that some point in the relationship, Mike is going to be Gus's key guy. 
Mike is going to be uh, become Gus's key fixer, Gus's key guy. Uh, and it seems like at this time it might be Victor. Uh, and maybe the fact that Mike was able to get the drop on Gus the way he did is going to impress Gus enough that Gus is going to start engaging Mike more and Mike will be able to make his bones in that organization. We speculated a lot about that. Is that what's going to happen? And it certainly seems like, well, right now Victor is occupying the role that Mike might later occupy. All right, Antonio, let's dive into some of the questions that we get. Again, if you want to send us questions after you watch the episode, we record these podcasts on Tuesdays uh, right now. So you could send them in bcs at postshowrecaps.com. bcs at postshowrecaps.com. This is a question that we got. Out of all the great moments in the episode, what was your favorite? For me, it was the slow pan out to reveal that Mike was trailing the guy right to Los Poyos Hermanos. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that element of the artistry. Uh, how great was that reveal, Rob? And how great was it that we were slowly pulling the camera back as Mike is driving away and the Los Pollos Hermanos sign comes into the frame and we go right to commercial? I thought that was phenomenal. Uh, the, the one downside to this, and I'd love to get your take on this, Rob, uh, because it wasn't really in uh, B.A. Cheek's question, but... I'm wondering, was this, did it lose a little bit of luster yes. that it should have had for you? It did. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, that we had two episodes here where we already knew Gus, I mean, Gus brings in these promotional images. And, and I understand that when they are promoting the show, it's a, it might be entirely different people than the production team that's making the show. So when you're shooting it, they don't know if it's going to be revealed that you're going to be having. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito in promotional materials for the season. But if you're a Breaking Bad fan and you followed this closely and you knew this was all happening, to me, I feel like that the reveal came very slow. The reveal came very slow. It did. Uh, We saw the colors of Los Poyos Hermanos. We saw a lot of what happened there. But it was this it was this reveal that was a lot of time in coming in the in light of the fact that they told us Springs back before the final episode of last season even aired, Rob. Mm-hmm. And we had the whole off season, as you're talking about, and the two episodes, as you're talking about, and all these things leading up to this. It was a little anticlimactic. I still, I still squealed a little bit. I was still very pleased with the, the bravado of how that all played out. I just think that the show, I, I feel like the show wanted to be as impactful with this moment as they could, but they also chose to heavily promote that Gus was coming back. So I feel like these moments uh, were not as impactful as they could have been if you didn't know. If you didn't know this was happening, it would have been awesome. And then similarly, I don't think it's nearly as impactful, and we talked about this from the top, I don't think it's nearly as impactful if you haven't seen Breaking Bad. That is a fan service moment for fans of Breaking Bad to see that sign reveal like that. It's generated and, and created to make us squeal for if you don't know that sort of thing from Breaking Bad, it's just a, why did they take so long pulling back to reveal that sign? I don't get it. But what I will say is that to the person a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, who watches all of Breaking Bad and then goes right into Better Call Saul, that moment will have that impact where yes. you are not following this show along with the marketing. You may not know which characters from Breaking Bad are going to be in this. So, again, if we are, you know, really appealing to the people watching in a binge, then, yeah, it's that, that'll be a big moment. 
Yes, it will. And you're right. You're, that's a really great observation because it is when you're making TV these days, you have to serve so many masters. And I'm sure the network wanted to heavily promote the Breaking Bad elements of this season of Better Call Saul because people have been craving for this. And it's a way to maybe get more of those Breaking Bad eyes on it as the ratings for Better Call Saul are uh, just a fraction of what Breaking Bad ever achieved at its height. So I get the desire to market this and lean into this moment. We talk about this with a lot of shows, Rob, uh, especially reality shows, but other shows that we talk about where you know you've got a key moment coming up. Don't you want to at least tease it? Don't you want to promote it so that people will tune in next week or uh, that people will have this? Uh, it comes up a lot in the WWE. If you're going to if you're gonna do this thing, have this big match on a Monday night, why didn't you mention it the week before? Because then you could have had continuity. There, there are many masters to serve when it comes to the network and keeping the viewers who are live, watching it live, entertained, and trying to get as many of those new live viewers as you can while also delivering a walloping punch for your binge viewers. And I think you're right. This moment will play much better for them, for sure. And with this same network, but with a different show, I think they really had it out with another creator, with Matthew Weiner in Mad Men, yes. where I feel like that he didn't want to do next time on, and they made him, and they had like the most asinine, nondescript, like uh, the, on, like next time on Mad Men, like people will answer the phone, hello? Like, uh, like you know, somebody opens the door, like, uh, Okay, good evening. You know, sit down, sit down. You know, this is, you, there was nothing. You, you learn nothing watching those uh, previews and those promotional materials. So, yeah, uh, it's it's a tricky thing. It is. Uh, and that's a really great observation. And then and, and Vince Gilligan, like they they're guilty of gilding the lily of the valley a little bit, as we've talked about. Like this is something where they like to play these games with the viewers. They have fun with it. And. Some of that, it, it ends up in a really fun place and a beneficial place, and some of it, not so much. And this is an example of I, – I also think we've talked about how they write this show where they don't have a plan for the greater thing. They come in with a season, and they start writing a season, and they write themselves into a place and write themselves out of it. They wrote the return of Gus Fring into the end of last season, and I think they wanted to have a lot of fun with that. And here we are. This is what it looks like. We draw it out a little bit. It will play differently on a binge, and I think that it will be more beneficial. As far as other fun moments from the episode, I really did appreciate all the camera work. I like that shot. I also love the shot where Mike later finds the phone in the desert, as we mentioned, and he goes to ring it. He's been made. Uh, he answers the ringing phone and all of that. But he's on the horizon, and he sort of emerges urges out of the horizon like Nosferatu coming out of the grave like he just looks like this bald man in black just rising out of the ground it's terrifying i the camera work in this episode was phenomenal so for me that was a major a major fun moment in the episode as well there were definitely fun moments in the episode, but there were also, I think, difficult moments as we talked about our own Scott St. Pierre, Rob, the inimitable yes. Scott St. Pierre, the great Scott St. Pierre. I think he made a couple of really good observations about the emotional level of what's going on in this episode. And he specifically observed this thing with Kim where he said, I'm confused. At first, Kim didn't want to hear anything. Tonight, she's all over the situation. Is it love? Is it control? 
What's your read on this, Rob? Where is Kim at at this point, both with the story, with what's happening with the tape, and just her relationship with Jimmy overall? We talked about the scenes, but I'm not sure we distilled the meaning from those scenes into the representation of their relationship right now. I mean, I think that for Kim, that she is just not wanting to see a good thing slip away with what's going on. I think that she was probably starting to feel very comfortable. Like There's a point where Jimmy's dealing with his clients. She's going in to her office uh she is starting to like see how it all could be happening for her and for jimmy and i don't think she wants that to be screwed up so i think that she becomes very practical at the point where that new information is presented to her whereas jimmy is the one who gets very emotional i don't think it's from a place of that she is so in love with jimmy that she's his protector i think that it was from a self-interested place of let's not screw up this great thing that we have going on Yeah. And the great thing includes Mesa Verde. Right. And that is part and parcel to this whole thing is the the great violation occurred because of Kim and because of Jimmy's love for Kim and because of Mesa Verde and Jimmy feeling like Kim deserved that client. And it's very important to her. And she knows that she did earn the client and she does deserve the client. So she knows that that this not this isn't something that she got purely because of Jimmy, that she did a lot of this stuff. We saw last week, the only reason I bring this up is we saw last week the the interesting scene between Paige from Mesa Verde and Kim, where Paige is trashing Chuck the whole time and saying, you have to clean up the mess that McGill left and not mentioning Chuck McGill by name and just saying McGill. And Kim may be internalizing that a little bit and thinking about Jimmy and thinking about her having to clean up his tracks on this. Mm -hmm. She's rising to the level of co-conspirator. Granted... There is protection for her a little bit because of the whole $20 thing, uh, because she's preserved some level of attorney-client confidentiality. But her hands are are pretty dirty here. Not only is this the guy she shares a building with uh, at work and at home, uh, but this is somebody who has is intricately or inextricably linked with uh, the client that is her number one client. And it could be bad for her on that level. So some of it to me is Kim having to protect herself uh, and it is not control or love. It's as you put it, self-preservation and trying to protect the good things that she likes about her situation right now. I think there's also probably choice validation. She made this great choice to leave HHM and to trust Jimmy's uh, pitch a little bit and to go out on sharing these things with him and, to trust him even though other people have told her, including Chuck throughout, that he's a bad guy and he's not to be trusted. She has to kind of validate the choices that she's made now. And I wouldn't call that love, but I feel like that's something that happens in a lot of relationships uh, where you start to validate the choices that you've made. And I think there's an element of that going on with Kim as well. Okay, Tony, let me give you this question. KX wants to know, why did Jimmy help Mike so readily? What was in it for him? What does he stand to gain from all this? Does he just love help? Helping the elderly so much. Knock, knock it off. <laughs> not funny. I appreciate that, KX. Yeah, I'm not a charity case, all right? Like, I go out here and live on my own. I take care of my family. It's a prequel. I'm younger than in Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> Always remember that. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is funny. Uh, I, I, Scott St. Pierre also asked about that validation, uh, and maybe Chuck is looking for that from Mike. I think that that's part of it. I, I also think 
the big part of this, the stand to gain thing, that's the Marco part. It's Jimmy yeah. wearing the pinky ring part. It's that he likes this sort of thing. Likes the action, the thrill of the hunt. Yeah, it's the thrill of the hunt. That's exactly right. Uh, it's the it's the thrill of the hunt and it's the action. I think that's a huge part of it. We see that in this episode, right? Mike is like, get out of my car. Breakfast is over. You did your job. And Jimmy's like, uh, no, wait, aren't we going to tail the guy? Like, where, where are we going to go next? Like, what are we going to do, Spot? Come on, Spike. Huh? You know somebody's like, like mm-hmm. He's like a little dog. Yeah. Like, wants to tail Mike around all day. And Mike is already past it. Jimmy has a utility and that's it. Jimmy wants to... He, I took. I cleared my whole schedule, Jimmy says. Like, I want to I want to follow right. somebody. I want to keep doing these capers with you. So that's it's the action, man. It's the action. He doesn't want to hear about the uh, cookies and the bottle caps and uh, who needs a break from the elder law the dietetic butter cookies yeah he needs to feel alive instead of focusing on the end of end of days like end of life kind of stuff uh, he wants to feel alive and even though it's an old guy that he's interacting with like this is action this is where he's slipping jimmy so he loves that okay antonio a- anything else you want to say about witness uh, we had just a shout out from our uh, albuquerque sport correspondent pj in albuquerque oh, uh, and pj pj said yes it does rain in Albuquerque. Uh, this is a, this is ultimately not. They're not ginning these things up for just the 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 cinema, cinematography porn. Like we do have rainy nights. This isn't just a desert scape where it never rains. Like this is something where they're they're accurately or adequately or accurately representing Albuquerque here. Uh, and I just think it's it's just so gorgeous. Like this show. It can it can contain so many different things from a cinematography perspective, whether it's desert scenes or in this. We got a lot of the film noir cityscapes like Mike. If that if that stuff with Mike at night had been in black and white, uh, you could have said it was from 1950 and I would have believed you like it was that level of uh, kind of thing that was going on there. So it's just a brilliant show. But because of that, it does have a lot of people that watch it for different reasons. I think some people like that most about the show. And so they find those Mike sequences to be the most entertaining parts. And then some people really love the Breaking Bad part. Some people are really liking the Chuck part. Some people are sick of it. So I think the show, more than most shows on television, has a very difficult task that it undergoes week to week. And I was really thrilled with this episode as a fan of Breaking Bad. Uh, but it did lean real heavily into the fan service elements. We had the major breakup with uh, Jimmy and Chuck. Fantastic acting by all parties involved in that scene. Bob Odenkirk, it's crazy to think of him as a comic performer. Rob because he's so much more and we're seeing so much more from him out of this show so I think we just we have to know like he's really killing it I don't know if Kim is getting the best service I'm glad we talked about the elements in play for her here we haven't seen Nacho in this season at all Rob how does Nacho come into this story I don't know. I think that probably when we end up seeing the Gus uh, sort of recruiting Mike onto his side of the feud uh, with uh, Hector and everything like that, I feel like that that's a way to get Nacho back. Yeah, especially if Nacho is secretly working for Gus, like he had some secondary agenda the whole time. Uh, And that's how they were able to get the drop on Mike. And that's why Nacho was standing in front of Hector in the desert. It could be that Nacho is already working with Gus. We we recall that Gus and Hector have this blood feud that goes back decades and that that Gus has always kept Hector alive, not wanted to kill him, not wanted to give him that release, but always wanted to be a real thorn in his side. We don't know where that relationship stands 
at this moment in the Better Call Saul timeline, but we do know that the horrible stuff with Gus that caused the anger with Hector has already happened. So it makes sense that he might have somebody on the inside of the Salamanca organization already, and that could easily be Nacho. Antonio, uh, you mentioned uh, fan service. I heard you and Josh Wiggler this morning when I listened. Uh, you guys talk about the first episode of The Leftovers Season 3, talking about how uh, you're nervous about fan service stuff, or at least Josh was, uh, in The Leftovers Season premiere. I highly recommend any Leftovers fans check out uh, you and Josh Wiggler recap that show. Yeah, having a lot of fun already with The Leftovers Season And not three. a show that's easy to have fun with. Not a show that's easy to have fun with. They, uh, they're already jo- dropping jaws at the beginning of this final season. And they are making references to Damon Lindelof's other magnum opus, Lost. And it's become difficult to separate the two. And I think that I understand the natural concern there. But we are loving talking about The Leftovers. We're going to do a feedback show about the first episode of the season, much like we did last week with Better Call Saul here, Rob. Uh, so if anyone wants to get in questions for that postshowrecaps.com slash feedback and you can send your leftovers feedback in. So if you're not watching that show and you watched Lost, I highly recommend you start watching The Leftovers and check it out. What was more impressive to you, Antonio? Chuck taping Jimmy or Kevin taping himself? <laughs> I'll, yeah, that's, that's all I need to do. I'll say with that. Sorry. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to say that yes. line. Okay. That was great. Okay. That was great. Uh, Antonio, so uh, yeah, everybody should check that out. Of course, uh, we'll be back next week to talk more of the Better Call Saul, episode number three of season three, coming up next week. Again, that subscription link on iTunes, postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. Uh, be on the lookout for a feedback leftovers show coming up this week. It's all happening, Antonio. It's happening, Rob. My hands are in the air and I'm just doing the jazz hands and there's sparkles behind my head. It's happening. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this recap. Looking forward to reading your comments on postshowrecaps.com. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.